Inspiration. Turn up the motivation. You're on the Ziggler Inspire Podcast. Zig Ziggler wants you to be your best. Welcome to Zig Ziglar's Inspire Podcast. This is your host, Blake Lindsay. Today we are listening to one of Zig's past Sunday school lessons. I have thoroughly enjoyed the last couple of lessons. In this lesson, Zig reminds us that God does not make mistakes. Let's turn it up and listen to Zig. Out of more anguished English. Highway Patrol Trooper. Question, was the defendant obviously drunk when you arrested her? Defense counsel. Objection, Your Honor. It calls for a conclusion. Judge, sustained. Trooper, question. When you stopped the defendant, were your red and blue light flashing? Answer, yes, sir. Question, did the defendant say anything when she got out of her car? Answer, yes, sir. Question, what did she say? Answer, what disco am I at? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I got to say it every week. Truth is stranger than fiction and funnier. You say this woman shot her husband with his pistol at close range. Answer, yes, sir, that's right. Question, any powder marks on his body? Answer, yes, sir, that's why she shot him. (laughs) Question, what is your date of birth? Answer, October 1910. Do you remember the day? Answer, no, but I've been told about it. (laughs) Question, Do you know whether your husband was born in wedlock? No, he was born in Owen Sound. (laughs) Oh, did (laughs) did you have any stocks and bonds? Answer, no. Do you have any debentures? No, my teeth are my own. Well, (laughs) I don't know what people do that don't have fun. Now, this is our fifth session in this series. And uh, the first one was, what is success? The second was employment security in a no-job security world. The third is recognizing, developing, and using what you've got. The fourth is the success formula. And the fifth is to serve or be a servant. There is a difference. Uh, When you volunteer to serve on your own, you're still in control. When you become a servant, you're submissive. There is a difference. We'll get into that a little more later on. I love the parable of the elderly lady who was walking across a lush green meadow. And as she walked across, it was a nice, warm, sunny day. And in the corner, there was a huge oak tree. And around that was a large pumpkin path. And as she had looked at those pumpkins, she sat down to kind of think about it. The pumpkins were huge, and yet they were on a tiny vine. She looked up in the oak tree, and this huge oak tree had tiny little acorns. And she thought to herself, you know, God really blew it on this one. He should have put the pumpkins in a big tree because of the strength of those limbs. And the pumpkins with those tiny little vines, it just doesn't seem right. Well, as she was reflecting on it, it was a nice, warm, sunny day, and she drifted off to sleep. She was awakened when one of the acorns fell off and landed on her nose. Then she realized that maybe God was right after all. (laughs) Now, you reflect on that for a moment. How many times do we think God has made a mistake? When reality is that God not only knows the beginning, but he knows everything that's going to happen along the way, and he knows how things are going 
to end. Uh, I take uh, great comfort uh, in my Bible. My Bible is uh, fairly well a constant companion. There's so much hope and encouragement. It's the only book of prophecy ever written in the world. Now, the only one, I should say, that has been proved to be 100% accurate before the events took place. There are over 5,000 prophecies in the Bible. 4,000 of them have already come to pass. On the day of the resurrection of Christ, 24 prophecies were filled on that day alone. Now, you go to any other figure in history and you read all about them, go to their grave and you will find the person in the grave. When you read about Christ and you go to his grave, you will find that it is empty. He is risen. He is alive. I read Romans 8, 28, and I get a lot of comfort out. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. He causes or permits things to happen. Now, not every single thing that happens is good. But when you put them all together, it comes out that, yes, all things do work together for good. In the 139th Psalm, in the uh, 16th verse, uh, we read... You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. God knows the past. God knows the present. God knows the future. And that includes you. The Bible says he watched every bone in our body being formed. And before we were born, the day of our home going was already known by God. Now, let me tell you why that is such a comforting verse. Many of you know that uh, we lost our daughter on May 13th of 95. We did everything humanly possible, medically speaking and love speaking and prayer speaking. We did it all to keep our daughter with us. However, God had a different plan. And the full realization that God knew the day she was going home eliminates any feeling of guilt. On our part. What if we had done that? Or if only we had done this? Now, can you imagine the relief that comes knowing uh, that God had a plan? Did that keep us from praying? Absolutely not. Millions of prayers. Did that keep us from giving her the best medical attention that could possibly be gotten? No, it did not. Humanly speaking, we did it all. Now we look forward to the day when we will see her again. We look up in the book of Hebrews in the uh, 11th chapter in the 6th verse. Uh, what I'm really talking about is faith. And what this says is, you see, it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that there is a God and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. Uh, now, when you think about that one just for a moment... Everything depends upon our faith. But Zig, uh, you mean that's all you got to do is just have faith? Well, if you have faith, you will do a lot of other things, but the faith comes first. You mean you don't have to work your way to heaven? No, John 6, 29 very specifically says, the work of God is this, 
to believe in the one he has sent. It's as clear as it can get. We'll deal with that also a little more in the future. But when we look it up, just what can man do is versus what can God do. In the book of John, in the 15th chapter, 5th, 6th, and 7th verses, I am the vine, you're the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It took me 45 years to learn that. Age 45, I was broken in debt. I committed my life to Christ, started studying what he had to say, trying to live by his principles, and things radically changed, dramatically uh, I got to throw this in. The redhead uh, loved me uh, even before. But she's crazy about me now. <laughs> there is a difference because she does have an entirely different husband. God performs radical surgery. Anyone who parts from me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But hear this. But if you stay joined to me and my words remain in you, you may ask any request you like and it will be granted. Now let me explain something. That doesn't mean that any idiotic request you make that is illegal, immoral, and other things is going to be given to you. What it says, if you stay joined to me. Now, if you stay in Christ, you're not going to make any, any illegal or immoral request. So there is a limit on what you can get. But God gives you what is best for you. And to me, that is enormously exciting. This uh, bit about our salvation and who we are, what we can do individually, I think was, uh, is wrapped up in one of my favorite stories. When little Ben Hooper was born many, many years ago in the foothills of East Tennessee, little boys and girls who had no idea who their daddies were were ostracized. They were treated horribly. By the time the child was three years old, the parents around there were saying, what's a boy like that doing playing with our children? As if the child had anything at all to do with his own birth. Age six, they put him in first grade. There were no kindergarten in those days. And uh, he was given a little desk. All the kids had a little desk. And at recess, he would uh, stay in his desk and study because the other kids would not play with him. Uh, at lunch, he took his little sack lunch and uh, went off and ate by himself. The other kids went off and ate together. I don't need to tell you, he had a very tough childhood. When he was 12 years old, a new young preacher came to that little church in the foothills of East Tennessee. And almost immediately, little Ben started hearing about what a wonderful man he was, how loving and kind he was, how non-judgmental he was, how when he was with you, he was with you. He uh, gave you his undivided attention, made you feel like the most important person on earth. One Sunday, though he had never been to church a day in his life, little Ben decided he was going to go. He got there late and he left early. He did not want any attention to be focused on him. But for the first time in that child's life, he caught a glimpse of hope. And folks, I can't say it strongly enough. Hope is the activator. Hope is what keeps us going. 
Anytime we have hope that things are going to happen, we will go to work to make them happen. Without hope, we throw up our hands and we say, what's the use? There's nothing I can do. John Maxwell says, if there's hope in the future, there's power in the present. Because you see, the way you see your future determines your thinking today. Your thinking today determines your actions today, and your actions today plays a major role in your future. He was back there the next Sunday and the next, the next and the next. He always got there late. He always left early. Did not want to attract any attention. But on about the seventh or eighth Sunday, the message was so moving, so powerful, so inspiring. It was almost as if there were a sign behind the young pastor's head that said, For you, little Ben Hooper of unknown heritage, there is hope. He got so wrapped up in the message, he did not even notice that a number of people had come in behind him. He forgot all about the time, and suddenly the services were over. He stood up, expecting to run out as he had in Sunday's past, but this time the aisles were blocked. As he was trying to get through, he felt a hand on his shoulder. He turned, he looked around, he looked up. He was looking into the eyes of a young minister who asked him a question which had been on the mind of every person there for the last 12 years. Whose boy are you? Immediately the church grew deathly quiet. You could hear, could have heard the proverbial pin drop. Then slowly but surely a smile started to spread across the face of the young minister until it broke into a huge grin as he said, Oh, I know whose boy you are. Why, the family resemblance is unmistakable. You are a child of God. And with that, the young minister swat him across the rear and said, that's quite an inheritance you got there, boy. Now go and see to it that you live up to it. Many, many years later, little Ben Hooper said, that was the day he was elected governor of the state of Tennessee, and later re-elected. You see, the picture he had of himself had made a radical change. He had gone from being the child of an unknown father to being a child of the king and a joint heir with the king. That's exactly what happened to me. I lost my earthly father when I was five years old. I met my heavenly father when I was 45. I can never lose him. Uh, it's a permanent arrangement. And you see, you become a child of the king in a very simple way. You're told in John 1:12, you're given a choice. You can become a child of the king. When that happens, there are radical changes that take place in uh, a person's life. We read uh, in our Bible, uh, in John 3, 16 uh, through 18, we read, and so many times people read John 3, 16 and stop reading, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. 
There is no judgment awaiting those who trust him. But those who do not trust him have already been judged for not believing in the only Son of God. Now, one of the things as a Christian, and I talk about my faith often, that I'm constantly confronted with is, do you really believe there is a heaven and there really is a hell? Yes, I believe it because that's exactly what the Bible says. Then the usual uh, standard comeback is, would a loving God condemn anybody to hell? No, God did not create hell for people. He created hell for the fallen angels. He provides us an escape from hell. Now, we have a choice. We can either take the escape route or we literally, as the Bible says, we do go to hell. Yes, there is a real place. I've had a lot of people say, well, I quit going to church because all they talked about was hell. I had another preacher say, if there were more hell preached in the pulpit, there'd be less of it out on the streets. Now, folks, the reality is that we do have that choice. We can become a child of the king. It is so simple. It is so easy. We're saved by our faith. It is what we believe. And when we believe in Christ as the Son of God, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if we believe in our hearts that God raised him from death, then we become a child of the King. Now, in uh, John three thirty one, we read the good news. And all who believe in God's Son have eternal life. Those who don't obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but the wrath of God remains in them. You see, not only is God a loving God, but He is a just God. Very simple question. Do you believe Stalin and Adolf Hitler and uh, Saddam Hussein? do you believe they deserve the same kind of eternity that Billy Graham and... Mother Teresa, and some of the great saints of all time deserve? I don't believe so, and I don't think you believe so. Now, just God is going to say there is a difference in them. I provide an escape for everybody, but they've got to take one very simple step. Now, when you know Jesus, then once you got that settled, what do you do? Well, first of all, you know, the Bible says Christ's last uh, admonition to us, go ye therefore into all the world, teaching and preaching. We need to share the good news of Christ. We need to share and let others see the joy that comes from those who really do know Christ. And then what do we do? Well, we need to recognize and develop what God has placed inside of us. For three of the last uh, four Sundays, I've been talking a lot about talking to yourself. I've been talking about claiming the qualities that have been built inside of us. I have uh, passed out a little sheet, and we still have some of them left, which have all of these on them. But I just want to kind of take the next step. I've talked about claiming all of these qualities every morning and every night. You've got the exact words on the sheets that have been passed out. But a lot of times people say, well, uh, Zig, you know, if I have the seeds of them, and that's all God needs, 
The Bible says if we take a grain of mustard seed and it grows into a mighty tree, all we need is the seed, but we've got to water it and we've got to fertilize it. Uh, if you say you're weak in a lot of them, and all of us are, uh, to quote Joel 3.10 again, the Bible says, let the weak say, I am strong. And let me then get very specific about another issue. Let's say that you've got one that you're particularly strong in and you've got some you're particularly weak in. What do you do to develop them? Well, let's say as an example, you are a very enthusiastic person, but let's say your organizational skill is reasonably limited. In other words, you could foul up a two-car parade if you, uh, uh, you, know, if you want to put it in terms that just about everybody can understand. So what you do after the first month of claiming all of these qualities... You get out a three-by-five card, and you write on it, print on it, type on it so that you can read it. Uh, simply the words, I am a very enthusiastic individual, and I'm getting better organized every day of my life. Now, question, how many of you have ever noticed that when you buy a green Buick, everybody in town all of a sudden starts driving green Buicks? Can I see uh, your hands, please? All right. Now, all that happens is you become aware of what's going on around you. Now, the minute you say, I am getting better organized all the time, an amazing thing is going to happen to you. Every time you glance at the cover of a magazine, it's going to have a little article there, how to get better organized. You go in a coffee shop to have a cup of coffee, and the people in the next booth say, you know, I got a couple of great organizational ideas just this morning. Uh, you turn on the television set, and they're talking about how do you get better organized. Everywhere you go, people are talking about getting better organized, and, and you're going to come to the conclusion that there's a conspiracy going on that people are getting together to help you get organized, to enable you to get the things that you want. And let me tell you something. That's real close to what's happening. An amazing thing happens in our lives, ladies and gentlemen, when we begin to focus on certain issues. When we become the right kind of person, unseen help all around begins to surface. And instead of just blocking your path to getting the things that you want that are right, then all of a sudden, they are giving you a pat on the shoulder. They're pushing you along. They're helping you to gain those things. You can take any situation and find fault with it, and some people do. You know, as I said earlier, uh, some people find fault like there's a reward for it. You can find fault in any situation, or if you look carefully enough, you will explore and say, what can I find that's good in this? When uh, Thomas Edison's laboratory burned down, he was 67 years old. He did not have any insurance. And uh, the next day, he uh, made the statement, there is benefits in every tragedy. Thank God every mistake we had made has now been burned up. We can start anew. Two weeks later, they produced the first phonograph. Ladies and gentlemen, what I'm saying is, how do you handle these things? Well, when you develop the qualities we've been talking about, you look at them and you say, you know a person who is honest and intelligent and goal-directed, and you go right down that list again, uh, can come up with a solution to the problem. Now, what I want to incorporate again in another story, and incidentally, for what it's worth, the greatest teacher who ever lived taught by parable. 
As a matter of fact, in the book of Mark, it specifically says, by parable taught he them. And without a parable taught he not them. We remember the story and then we remember the lesson. And for what it's worth, the Center for Creative Research in Greensboro, North Carolina, has uh, done some scientific research and they say, yep, that's the best way to teach. Isn't it nice to have somebody confirm what our Lord told us a couple of thousand years ago? Okay, now what, uh, what this is getting at is down in uh, Beaumont, Texas, at the turn of the century, a uh, man was selling his land bit by bit to feed his family. Things were tough. An oil company came along and said, Sir, we think there's oil on your property. Let us drill for it. If we discover any, we'll pay you royalties on every barrel that's pumped out. He had nothing to lose. He had everything to gain. So he said, Okay, let's do it. Well, when the, in those days, the derricks were made out of wood. And one of the things that created the most excitement was if they brought a well in and it destroyed the derrick, there was great excitement because that was an indication of the depth and quantity of the oil underneath. Well, when they brought this well in, it literally obliterated the derrick. Hundreds of thousands of barrels of oil were pumped out before they could put the cap on it. This was the world's introduction to spindle top. Three major oil companies came out of that discovery in that field. The man became an instant multimillionaire. Or did he? The reality is he was a multimillionaire from the day he owned the property. He just didn't know it. He did not know what was down under that ground of his. The truth is, God has built inside of us so many wonderful qualities that when we recognize, when we confess, yes, I've got them, when we develop them, then, ladies and gentlemen, that's when things happen. Because remember, you've got to be before you can do. You've got to do before you can have. But please understand that underneath all of this, ladies and gentlemen, is that underlying thing called faith. And because God created us and because God built these things into us, when we look to him understanding that you plus God equals enough, then uh, wonderful things are going to happen in our lives. And to be candid, God doesn't need us to make them happen. One of my favorite uh, biblical stories uh, takes place in the uh, uh, book of uh, Judges. And it's a story, uh, ladies and gentlemen, of a, a fellow that, uh, named Gideon. Now, Gideon and his people were in big, deep trouble. They had been uh, mistreated uh, by the Midianites. The situation was so desperate that he had milled his grain at night down in a hidden area for them to have anything at all to eat. And during one of these escapades where the angel of the Lord uh, uh, came to him, and this is in Judges 6, 12, and said to him, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Or mighty warrior in some of the texts of the Bible. And in essence, Gideon said, Who me? He said, Let me tell you about who I am. Our clan is the smallest and weakest in the whole bit. And I'm the run of the litter. Was he a mighty warrior at that moment? Was he a mighty hero? Uh-uh. But God called him mighty hero. He was simply telling the truth in advance. He was saying, here's what I am going to make 
of you. And then in the seventh chapter, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many warriors. Now, what had happened was he had collected about 30,000 troops when they decided they were going to war, go to war against the Midianites. He collected about 30,000 of them. God said, that's too many. And so Gideon uh, decided to weed some out. He said, now, you fellows that got wives and children at home or you have any fear, skedaddle. And that's direct version, King James, right there. Skedaddle, get on out of here. We don't need you. See, all of our attitudes are contagious. Fear is contagious. If we're thinking about other things other than the issue at hand, it, it permeates the organization. A positive individual thinks otherwise. And then uh, about 20,000 of them left. And the uh, Lord said, hey, you still got too many. Uh, if, we, if we let that many fight, they'll say, we did it. I want to make it crystal clear that it's God who's doing it. Now, what did he do then? He said, well, take them down to the creek and get them a drink of water. And those who kept their stance and simply cupped their hands and picked the water up like that, only 300 were left. The Lord said, that's good. Now, then an interesting thing happened. Uh, you know, Gideon was still a little bit puzzled about this deal. You know, Lord, I don't know about this. And Lord said, I'll tell you what you do. Tonight, during the change of the guards, you go down, listen in on their camp, and hear what they're saying. He went down, and see, here's reputation that's going to come forth again. Uh, uh, these guys were talking, and uh, Gideon and his servant heard him, and these two men were talking, and uh, just as a man was telling his friend about a dream, the man said, I had this dream, and in my dream, a loaf of barley bread came tumbling down into the Midianite camp. It hit a tent, it turned it over, and knocked it flat. His friend said, your dream can mean only one thing. God has given Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite victory over all the armies united with Midian. God's reputation had preceded them. What the friend was saying, look, buddy, the reputation God has is if he hooks up with his Israelites, we ain't got a chance. And apparently he's already made a deal with them. Uh, we better skedaddle out of here. Now, what God did was very simple. Some of you know the story, some do not. Gideon divided his 300 into three camps, 100 in each area, gave him a pitcher and a trumpet, and they were supposed, the pitcher had a candle in it, and they were supposed to clash them together, flash the light, and make all of that noise. And when they did, all of those hundreds of thousands of Midianites, how many were there? There were so many that they said the camels they had with them were as grains of sand. Hundreds, I mean thousands and thousands and thousands of them, and God turned them against each other, and as a result, a tremendous victory was won. Did Gideon and his 300 win it? We all know better than that, don't we? What Gideon uh, did simply was obey God. And ladies and gentlemen, when we obey God, some incredible things happen in our lives. What is the difference that we're talking about? We're talking about taking what God has given us, trusting God that we can use it to His glory and to our benefit because those are benefits are absolutely astronomical. They do come our way. You probably don't recognize the name Harvey Sheffield, 
But Harvey was uh, one of the torchbearers in the 15,000-mile trek to the Atlanta Olympic Stadium. Uh, Along the way, he was crossing the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. It was on May 7, 1996, and he was carrying in his bicycle a special stand to hold the Olympic flame. Uh, His tire blew out, had a collision, the flame was doused. There was that quiet moment when, uh, you know, he was scared to death. Oh, if I douse the Olympic flame. But the van that was coming alongside of them said, no problem. The mother flame is on the inside. They quickly gave them uh, the new torch and off they went. See, what we need to understand is that the Holy Spirit is the flame that remains inside of us. And what we've got to do is call upon that flame. When we take what God has given us, knowing that God is at the water, so eloquently said, God don't make no junk. When we understand we're created in His own image, we're wonderfully and fearfully made, and that He has a tremendous investment in us, and He put the qualities inside of us that we need to be extremely successful. And I'm not talking about getting financially rich, although that might also happen. But I'm talking about the things that are best for you. One of the greatest approaches is that of servant leadership. I want to talk about a lady, and chances are extremely good that uh, you have never heard of. Her name is Gertrude Hobbs. She is 26 years old, and uh, she was at that point an unclaimed jewel. She was a single lady, and had resigned herself to the fact that she was always going to be a single lady. But she met this 36-year-old professor there at uh, the college, and he was a bachelor, an absolutely brilliant man. He could talk with equal knowledge about uh, physics and chemistry and mathematics, and he was a, a brilliant Bible scholar and student. He had charisma. He was a, a remarkable man. And uh, she married uh, him back in 1910. They celebrated their honeymoon in America. They were over here for a number of weeks, and while here, they prayed that God would give them a ministry. They specifically wanted a home where they could uh, have boarding students come in and then uh, he teach those Bible students what he knew about the Bible, teach them about Christ. Tell them all about the cross and what it meant when Christ shed his blood on, uh, on our behalf. Well, God answered that prayer, and when they got back, God gave them a Victorian home and 26 students. Now, the interesting thing is, Gertrude Hobbs, all of a sudden, and they had uh, one uh, little girl, uh, all of a sudden, she also had uh, 26 students. The little girl came a couple of years later, three years later. They had 26 students. She did all of the cooking, all of the preparation for them. Now, can you imagine all of a sudden, here's a lady who's been single all of her life, now she's cooking for uh, 28 people, including her husband and herself. It was backbreaking work. But in the uh, times when she was not busily engaged in doing what she had to do, she went in and listened to her husband lecture. She took meticulous shorthand notes, which she later transcribed so that it could be permanently saved. She did this for several years, and then 1916, the YMCA 
asked her and her husband to go to Egypt, World War I was going on, to be with the troops down there and serve as a chaplain. Again, they set up a home down there, and though she did not cook all the meals, and though they did not live with her, sometimes a hundred or more of them would come in at the same time, and she would uh, provide some kind of refreshments for them. She was a busy lady, exhausted much of the time. And yet every time she had a moment, she would always go in and sit and listen to her husband's lectures. She would take those meticulous shorthand notes. She would later transcribe it for permanent uh, uh, keeping. Now, the interesting thing is, though you probably never heard of Gertrude Hobbs, she had an incredible impact on your life and mine. Because, you see, she has written, see, her husband died, uh, what we would describe today as a senseless death. He had an appendix ruptured. He did not get to the doctor in time, uh, and God called him home. She was a widow for 49 years. She wrote over 50 books. One of the books that she wrote is the second best-selling book of all time, exceeded only by the Bible. The title of the book is My Utmost for his highest. I'm talking about Mrs. Oswald Chambers. You see, Oswald Chambers really dictated the books, but it was his wife who wrote those books. What an impact. Total commitment, total servanthood, total obedience, and God used her in a special way. See, all of us might not have the same talent, But when we had developed a servant's heart, you know, the Lord said, who would be the greatest among you must become the servant of all. When we have that servant's heart, it's amazing what God can do with us. Every person has a different role. That role might be a very simple one. I so well remember Adrian Rogers as a young minister when he and a friend of his were conducting a revival And they were coming home, you know, and just talking about all the wonderful things that were happening uh, and what great services they were. And his friend mother simply said to them, boys, let me remind you of something. The reason it's happening is because I and many other mothers and wives like me are on our knees during the entire time that you are preaching. God answers prayer. We need to understand that. The more we pray, the closer we get to him. His Bible is the way he teaches and talks to us. Prayer is the way we talk to him. God's not always going to send us a fax to tell us what to do. But when we head down a path that is not pleasing to him, I can guarantee you, he will permit us no peace of mind. He will give us that feeling, this is not right. We need to trust those feelings when we get those feelings as a result of our prayer. I want to encourage you again to open up your Bible and explore the specific scriptures that Zig used. See what they say to you. Until next week, this is Blake Lindsay encouraging you to live your life to the fullest. Ziggler. Ziggler. Inspiring true performance.